Hey everybody, this month's episode of the Rado Talks Through Podcast is brought to you by Honey Buzz Fall Flavors, which is available for pre-order now in regular and deluxe editions. And I have talked about Honey Buzz in the past. I even did a run-through. This is a fantastic, crunchy worker placement game about honeybees collecting the pollen, making the honey, and selling it to all the woodland critters. But this new expansion adds so much leaves and fruit that give you a lot more flexibility and variety, but more importantly, what really gets me excited are the modules that let you sacrifice, or I should say retire your worker bees to be able to lock in extra objective victory points. This is one of my favorite mechanisms of all time, and I cannot wait to try it in a game that was already absolutely fantastic. Like I said, it is available for pre-order now at honeybuzz.rado.com. There's a regular and a deluxe edition, and it looks cool. And welcome, everybody, to the April episode of the podcast, where you ask the questions and we answer them. And uh, actually, I should have gotten this up a bit sooner. Sorry it took so long. We actually recorded all of the Q&A section last week while we were still on the road in the RV, uh, hanging out at Arches National Park in Utah. Uh, although I don't think you get to see any of that in the background, because it's just a tight video of us in the RV. But anyway... As always, there were some fun questions, some very challenging questions, some very thought-provoking questions, and uh, folks, we can't do this without you. So uh, for next month, be sure to send your questions to the email address questions at rotto.com. Before we get going, because I've done this a week ago, some actual questions have come in since recording the main thing, and won't get to them until next month. I just want to apologize to Jack and Ben and Olivier and Victor. I've got your emails, guys, about various and sundry things, but the timing is just a bit off. We'll get to that next week, but hopefully, folks, you send a few more questions in just those, because we need it. It's the fuel that keeps this podcast going. And without any further ado... Let's get right to it. First, we're going to have uh, the games questions, which this month there weren't really any good ones for Jen. So it's just me, and then Jen shows up for all the personal Q&A. So sit back and relax. We'll get right to it. Okay, everybody, let's get going. We're starting out today with some stuff from Daniel. Daniel, who wonders, is there a game designer whose games seem uh, to me like they were made deliberately so that I would not like them. Uh, mechanisms, not necessarily player count. Uh, I don't know. Um, the first thing that pops into my head would probably be Bruno Cathala. It's so weird. He makes such wonderfully smart design decisions, but that he always, always insists in every game on just throwing in some completely useless take-that stuff that just ruins the game for me and Jen. We just had that the other day in um, Sobek, the new two-player game, where, again, just threw in stuff where you can steal from each other for no reason. It in no way improves the game, and it, I mean, it just absolutely makes it worse. Just cheap, throwaway um, stuff, but he seems to love it, and I do not know why. It's such a shame. Um, I mean, I, you know, Seven Wonders has one of the greatest examples of, oh, look, it's military conflict, but it's done in a way that isn't really nasty or take that. But then, as soon as Bruno Cathala works with Antoine Bauzon, Seven Wonders Duel, hey, all of a sudden, you can start torching your opponent's money and just throwing it away, which never existed before. So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give that one to uh, Cathala, and and uh, Bruno, knock it off. 
again, you don't have to. It's if, if it's what you love, do what you love, buddy. Uh, anyway, though, let's move on to Daniel's next question. Why do I think uh, cooperative designers like to add randomness? Randomness and chaos to their games. I don't mean some luck. I mean, here you are. Lose your turn. Or lose all the stuff you've spent the entire game building up. Or one player discards their hand and boom, you're heading into a death spiral through no fault of your own. Well, that sounds terrible. Those sound like terrible design decisions and I don't think you should play those games, quite frankly. I don't see that kind of stuff happening. I mean, you don't get that kind of stuff in Pandemic. You don't get that kind of stuff in Gloomhaven. You don't get that kind of stuff in The Loop or try and think of really good cooperative games. The Crew. Uh, Yeah. 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 Skip an entire turn. That's not... Those are just bad design decisions, but... And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know, Daniel, you're playing some crappy games, it sounds like. If you have specific examples, by all means, send a follow-up questions to questions at raw.com and, uh, and we can dig a little bit deeper into this, because I'm not sure that I'm seeing <clears throat> what you're seeing here. Okay, then let's move on to the next one. And hey, it happens to do with Seven Wonders. I, uh, uh, yeah, see, Daniel agrees with me and disagrees with Dan. So this is from last month when Dan and I, I don't remember what we were talking about. Oh, card drafting, right. Uh, right. Uh, so, uh, Daniel points out, uh, yeah, you, you, you have to hate draft if everybody is at equal skill level. Yes, that was my argument. I was really surprised, quite frankly, that Dan has such a really, I mean, Dan is a very experienced gamer. I played several games with him while we were in Phoenix, and he was the best player at the table. He was beating Jen left and right, so he is no slouch. Um, but it was still surprising to see him have such a casual attitude about card drafting games that, you know, if he and I were playing a game, He's like, oh, I'll just always take the best thing I can, and I don't care what my neighbor wants. Whereas me, okay, I'll take the best thing that's good for me that really hurts my neighbor. I will beat Dan. There's no two ways about it. If one player is hate drafting and the other player is not, that other player is losing. Um, you know, unless really random um, luck falls their way. So anyway, yeah, I was really surprised that that was Dan's attitude. But I guess, you know, hey, if he's having fun, more power to him. And if he's and here's the deal: if no at the table is hate drafting, then it's fine. But as soon as one player is hate drafting, um, you know they are guaranteeing the player to their left is going to lose. But the thing is, they're going to up their chance of losing too if the player to the right isn't hate drafting. Oh, you know, it's it's. It's a circle of life, basically. A circle of hate drafting. But regardless, Daniel continues. Um, Daniel also points out there's the potential of double hate drafting. What's that? It's when um, person one takes a slightly suboptimal card because they want to leave that one particular card to player two because that would force player two to hate draft that card against player three. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, That is high level seven wonders play when you're thinking not only about the player to your immediate left, but the player beyond that as well. And you know, that's the best play as far as I'm concerned. Um, let's see. So, in essence, player one is hate draft against both player two and player three. Yeah, uh, I, 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 you don't, it looks like you don't really have a question there. Um, but I agree with you, Daniel. Yes. Hate drafting for the win. And it's, uh, you know, one of the few things that doesn't really bother me that much in terms of aggressive play. You know, which, of course, flies in the face of the first thing I point out. Anyway, though, number four from Daniel. What is preventing Spirit Island from being ranked higher for me and Jen? 
just the game length, quite frankly. I think it's a fantastic game, but it is a big monster of a game. Uh, you know, I, I imagine if Jen and I were to play it enough, we could get it down to where we could get it done in under two hours. But in our experience, it is a two-plus-hour game for us. And um, the thing is, <clears throat> for us, generally speaking, we want co-op games to be, you know, clocking in at 60 minutes, 90 minutes at the most, because... Playing a, a two-plus-hour game that is competitive, where you know one player is going to win and one player is going to lose, you know, it's not our favorite thing, but we're okay with that. There's plenty of long, you know, and I know a lot of people think, oh, it's not long until it's four hours, but hey, for us, two, more than two hours is getting on the long side for us. In a competitive game, that can still be okay. But in a cooperative game, where if we just sat down for two hours and 15 minutes... And then we both lose against the game. That is that's a non-starter for us. It is very very rare. Uh, in fact, I can only think of one game that falls under the aegis of yeah, we will accept that, and that was Gloomhaven. And here's the reality: Gloomhaven, um, we play, we just played at standard difficulty level, and we effectively almost never ever lost. Uh, we really should have pumped it up to the next level of difficulty, so the game was more of a challenge for us. But we didn't want to put in two-plus hours into a session and have a decent shot of losing. For us, a cooperative game, if it goes over an hour and um, both of us lose, we feel like we wasted our time. Um, whereas we don't feel that way in a competitive game because one of us is going to win. So that's pretty much, that's really my only fault with Spirit Island. And I don't know, heck, maybe by now there is some kind of express variant version with all the expansions and whatnot that have come out over the years. I have only ever played just base Spirit Island, but that's kind of how it comes down for us. Okie dokie. Next up, we've got Frank, who is really enjoying the Rotto Rankings. Uh, in my last episode, though, I indicated that I probably will never finish the series, given the way Pub Meeple works, and that's a real shame, says Frank. Have I considered changing it up and ranking only my top 50 or my top 100, uh, meaning which I could finish and also showcase games that we care about, since most of us probably don't care as much about lower-ranked games. Here's the deal. I'm Frank, I'm not that worried about it, because when I say I don't know that I'll ever finish it, that is because at some point... And for, oh, I should say, for folks who don't know, the Rankening Show is something I do every couple of weeks where I use the Pub Meeple website. They have this ranking engine where you can put in a list of, um, well, in my case, I've put in a list of 400 games. And it will give me those games and say, Game X compared to Game 32. Game 47 compared to Game X2, whatever. Uh, you know, And it's just like uh, game by game making me rank individual ones. Do I want to play that one or that one? That one or that one? And the thing is... At the beginning of this, and probably, I, I don't know exactly how long, but for the first third of this process, Frank, it's never going to re-ask me about a game. It's only going to be every single time asking me about new games that it hasn't put yet. Once it's got, done an initial ranking of everything, which again, I'm going to assume is probably 20 or 30% of the way into the process, then yeah, I'm going to start seeing repeats. I'm going to see it ask me about the same game again, and uh, but compared to a different game or whatever. And... That, when I say I don't think I'm ever going to make it, I don't think I'm going to make it past that. 
my intention at the very, very least is to keep on doing it until it has asked about all 400 of those games, because that's 400 games I can talk about and tell people about that they've never heard of before. Um, but in kind of a fun way where I'm you know, comparing A to B and all of that. Now, don't get me wrong. We'll see when we get there if I decide if I want to keep on going and start seeing repeats. Because the thing is, once it starts repeating, in theory, the, the, uh, the show could go much quicker, because for each game, I don't have to spend three minutes explaining what it is. I could just say, oh, this versus that. Boom, this versus that. And, you know, maybe it'll speed up and maybe I'll see it all the way through. I don't know. Time will tell. But my intention is, it's for the very least, to make it to long enough to where all the games have been talked about. That's, that's my current thinking anyway. And continuing on, what do we got here? We've got Jeff. Jeff says, for starters, the term replayability gets tossed around quite a bit. Frequently followed by variability of setup. There are plenty of examples, however, of games that do not feature any variability in setup and are considered to be highly replayable due to the inordinate number of early, mid, and late game states that emerge. For example, Chess, Hive, Go, Tigers, Euphrates, name a few. Uh, their replayability is born out of the high amount of depth in the game, not new setups with different tiles to look at or variable powers or asymmetric roles, branching narratives, etc. Those characteristics provide added content, which doesn't necessarily translate to replayability. I would completely agree with that. You could have a lot of variability, and but the variability is so inconsequential and meaningless as that to where it doesn't even need to be there. And I've certainly seen that on some games where, oh wow, that's really cool that you've got. And wow, this is really just a different way to to what do you call it? Shave the same cat. So yes, um, variability does not necessarily equal replayability. It's a strong indicator, though, certainly when it's done well. But continuing on, Jeff then adds, perhaps it's how we define replayability that differs from person to person. For me, says Jeff, it's about how much I want to come back and play the game over and over again. I've literally played thousands of games of cribbage online and in person. It's replayable because I enjoy it and the interactions with the people I've played with. Uh, I've played dozens of games of Crokinole because of the competitive atmosphere that brings our family together. So the question is, uh, Jeff says, does variability in setup or otherwise equate replayability? Well, I've already answered that question. It's it's an indicator, but it is uh, it it does not uh, you know it, it does not guarantee. It's not a guarantor. All right. If not, perhaps we shouldn't conflate the two. Instead, just highlight the game's variability as a standalone trait. It's similar, I think, to those who use complexity and depth interchangeably. You know what, Jeff? I completely agree with you. You are entirely right. It probably should be called out separately, and there is no better. Um, parallel to the confusion around, oh, this game is really heavy because it's so complex. Well, that doesn't know, or I, to me, depth is more important than complexity when you're talking about the overall weight of a game, and yet they're thrown around interchangeably, and you're right. The same thing is true for variability and replayability. All that said, um, I think, Jeff, you are a certain type of player who's looking for a certain type of experience. And I and you know, I don't think you're giving enough credit where credit is due to the novelty factor of variability. Um, yes, chess is infinitely replayable. No two ways about it. Poker, infinitely replayable with the infinite number of cards. But I don't feel that way. I've played enough chess in my life to say, geez, Louise, I never want to play that game again. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Now, I know uh, if you're a chess aficionado, that's blasphemy. Every game of chess is a unique puzzle to solve and a unique uh, gambit. And I, mean, you know, I, I watch the Netflix show and all that. But to me, 
just feels the same every single time because I am not a diehard aficionado super fan of chess or poker or, um, you know, whereas a game that gives, you know, chess, that um, a, a version of chess that um, had different setup scenarios where, you know, if somehow they could come up with a way to balance that, oh, well, I've got three rooks and no knights and you only have half the number of pawns as normal, but everything else is the same. That would be amazing. I would love to see. Don't worry, I probably still want to play it because at the end of the day, I, I, not only am I not interested in chess because of the lack of variability, but also because at the end of the day, it's a very confrontational game. So I'm just not interested in playing it. But if I didn't have that confrontational thing, I would love to see a version of chess like that. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, that comes up all the time. People are constantly coming up with new ways to mix chess with a deck of cards and, um, you know, and, and all kinds of things to add more variability. Because for some time, and you say it yourself, Jeff, for some types of players, the we... Uh, the replayability that we appreciate is from the novel and the new. Different combinations of things. Not different combinations of moves that will play out slowly over the course of the game. Oh, I started with the Kazmarov Gambit, and you countered with the... I don't even know what, but still, you know, and that's going to lead to a different game over the course of the game, but at the end of the day, I'm still moving the same pieces around with the same set of rules, and to me, it feels exactly the same. And the variability that comes from, oh, well, my, I lost my night really early on. I appreciate that makes a different experience, but not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for Agricola where, wow, um, I guess I'm really going to focus on uh, vegetables this time because if I can get these three cards working together, that's going to make an amazing engine. It's unlike any other game I've ever played of Agricola where I'm if I, if I can pull this off. And that is less... And, and again, that is about novelty. And I would say... Or variability done well, where the variability is truly game-changing, is um, warrants, I mean, to me, is a more exciting and engaging version of replayability. Um, so, if I were to separate them into different categories, I mean, yeah, I suppose so. I, I, I suppose you still could, but it's very hard for me because the version of replayability that you find engaging, Jeff, is... A complete, I I would rate Chesh and Go and uh, and Crokinole and um, Cribbage as low replayability for me and my sensibility, and I think that would be incorrect. I would be making a factual error to state that, but it would be my own subjective opinion. So I think I'm going to stick with the way it is. But I mean, you're entirely right to bring all this up, Jeff. I don't disagree at all. It, but it really, at the end of the day, it does come down to what players are looking for. Okay. Uh, next up, Jeff wants to set a scene. Jen and I are traveling cross-country in the RV, which we are doing right now. As you can see, I am in the RV. I'm sure I probably mentioned that at the beginning. Once again, I'm filming stuff out of order. Anyway, though, mm. all of a sudden, mechanical warnings start popping up. Oh, that has happened in this trip. Um, on the instrument panel, a major breakdown seems inevitable. In addition, the weather app informs a severe storm warnings. Jeff, it's like you've, you've been spying on us on our trip. All this stuff is happening. Um, and because you're in the middle of nowhere, this involves impending tornado activity. So, you must seek shelter and find somewhere safe for you and the pups to ride out the storm and get the RV fixed. Okay, now we haven't had, it hasn't gone that far, but we have definitely had to ride out some storms. It's been pretty scary at times. As luck would have it, there's an isolated home in a country lane with a nice couple who recognize our predicament and offer to help. Make matters better, they both enjoy board games, love dogs, and phenomenal cooks. 
well, this is great. This has not happened for us. Uh, we agree to take up residence for a couple days until the storm rolls through and the RV mechanics can do their pairs. So to decompress, of course, with this uh, delightful pair, we uh, ask if they have any games they want to play. And this is there, and this is, we're on vacation. Um, they have three games to choose from, and we must play. Merchants and Marauders, Dominant Species, Eclipse. Now, uh, Jeff says, with the exception of Merchants and Marauders, I've done run-throughs of the other two. I have played Merchants and Marauders, and I thought it was so terrible, I decided I'm not even going to bother running through it. If I recall correctly, I really hated Merchants and Marauders. I thought it was just awful. Um, for, and Jen, I, I didn't even think we could finish playing a game. It was so bad. Anyway, though. I see, folks, there are plenty of games out there I don't like, and I could go into great depth why, but I was raised... If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Anyway, though. So, um... Extolling the virtues design, other categories... All right, so our hosts in this hypothetical situation point out there's a nice semi-cooperative variant for Eclipse, house rules for Merchants and Marauders that don't allow for attacking each other, and in Dominant Species, you can eliminate one or two of the really nasty take-that cards. So if I have to choose, which would it be? Oh, Eclipse, no toys about it. Easily. Merchants and Marauders is just a slog. Oh my gosh, that game should last half as long as it does. It is just, it just never ends. It's interesting, all three of these games are very much on the long side, but Merchant's Marauders is a really lightweight game. For the amount of length of time it takes to play, there is no meat on that bone. It is so simple and straightforward, and I get it. It's incredibly rich in thematics, so I understand why people love it, but there is just not much actual game there in our experience having played it maybe half of the way through and realizing, oh my god, this is so boring, we just have to stop. So Merchant Marauders is straight out. Dominant Species and Eclipse are both brilliant. Make no mistake about it. I did not know about the semi-cooperative variant for Eclipse. That's news to me. I have to admit, my, my inclination would have been heading towards Eclipse anyway because um, a lot of Eclipse from my plays, I've played it a few times, is really just, oh, I'm just playing in my own little sector of the galaxy, and sooner or later, somebody's going to muscle in, and you know what, hey, maybe we can work something out, we don't have to fight at all. But if we do have to fight, it's really not going to be a major portion of the game. Whereas Dominant Species is, again, having played it many, many years ago, as I recall, it is a much more aggressive... Boy, you know, it is, it's, it's a more aggressive area control game, but it's so abstract... I mean, you don't really build stuff like you do in Eclipse. You know, I built a fleet that you can destroy in Eclipse. I mean, me putting down some cubes that you get rid of in Dominant Species, that's tough. Which one would I go for? And I do think, ultimately, at the end of the day, Dominant Species is the superior design. No offense to Tuco Tukali, Eclipse is very, very cool as well. I think... Oh, you know what? I'm, I'm actually going to about face. I'm probably going to go with Dominant Species. More elegant rule set. Now, my biggest complaint about Dominant Species really isn't the domination so much. It's the amount of extra bookkeeping that has to go into um, keeping track of, you know, how the uh, different tiles are leaning based on what players have done. You know, all that kind of stuff. But hey, if I'm playing with this lovely uh, board gaming couple and they know the game like the back of their hands, that means for once they've got to do all the upkeep. And it doesn't have to be me for once. So, yeah, I think I'm going to go Dominant Species for those reasons. Eclipse number two, a close second. And you know, I don't know what this semi-cooperative mode is, but it intrigues me. 
It very much is. Is this like a one versus many? One player can play as the ancients, and everybody else can be. If if so, that would probably go into number one, and we'll just have one of the uh, the nice uh, hosts take it. But all other things being equal, I'd probably go with dominant species if I got to play it with somebody who could do all the heavy lifting of the maintenance and whatnot. Okay. Number three, says Jeff, I've seen you get fairly emotional during uh, some run-throughs. Freedom, the Underground Railroad comes to mind. Are there any notable games that have caused you strong emotional um, responses? Sad, joy, anger, sadness, joy, anger, sure. A bunch. Uh, I tend to talk about them when it happens. It doesn't happen that often, but you're right, uh, Freedom, the Underground Railroad was one. Uh, the original Pandemic Legacy, Jen and I found that to be incredibly emotionally powerful. Oh, um, this war of mine, geez, Louise. But y'all, these are all just kind of negative emotions, you know, sadness, despair, um, uh, joy, and anger. I mean, well, any good game is going to provide us joy. I mean, it's joyful just to succeed at what we set out to do. Uh, For us, if things are going well, Agricola is a joyful game. It generally engenders joy, and we pull off a really tough thing, and we look back and we see, oh, I didn't think I'd be able to do it. Look at what I've done. That's true joy for us. Um, anger, a game that spar- sparks anger. I don't think so. Honestly, anger is something I feel enough of in my day-to-day life when I look around at the state of the world, so I don't, go- I don't want to experience that. You know, sorrow and despair, I will welcome that, in the same way, I'll I'll uh, welcome. Oh, you, is this a movie? I'm going to turn on the waterworks. Sign me up. I want to watch that movie. I love blubbering my way through a movie. I, it's a really cathartic emotional release. Anger isn't the same though. I'm not looking for that in anything. So yeah, there's plenty of sadness. Most games, if they're good and satisfying, can spark joy. Anger, not something we're tending to go for that often. Don't really look for that very often. Number four, along the same lines, Freedom of the Underground Railroad, in addition to being a good co-op game, uh, goes to great lengths to provide an educational experience. I agree. Uh, Jeff finds that these types of games really resonate. Wingspan, which offers text on the cards that highlight the facts about different birds, was a nice touch. Genotype delved into uh, Mendelian genetics. Uh, wonder, what other games could you think of that do this very well and are also considered to be really well designed? Jeez, Louise, that's a good question. And I am sorry to say, Jeff, hopefully you've been satisfied with my other answers up now because you're not going to be satisfied with this. My brain is not very good at just pulling up data points like that uh, at all, really. Um, so this, I think, is going to be uh, something you're better off going. Go to faq.rado.com. I think it's entry number six. Hey, if I like this game, recommend another game, which is basically what you're asking here. And then all I do is I recommend people go check out the um, recommendation form on BoardGameGeek. I guarantee you, Jeff, you would get a much better answer there than what I could come up with off the top of my head. The only thing I can think of, quite frankly, is just only because I played it recently. It's a silly little example, but I was very surprised that Deep Dive from Flat Out Games which is a very lightweight party style push your luck game about penguins hunting for prey in the in the in the deep ocean how i learned a lot about penguin behavior in that because they really modeled a lot of real world stuff in the into the game mechanisms in really sharp ways that's neither here nor there it's not really what you're looking for but it's all i can think of off the top of my head sorry man finally number five years ago i did a run through a power grid with the robots expansion yes I do remember that. I mean, I always respect how 
bold and experimental Friedman Freeze is, and that robot certainly was, and it was definitely ahead of the curve. Anyway, Jeff continues, We thought it was a fun two-player experience, but recently came across a variant for two-player called Against the Trust. Am I familiar with it? It doesn't make for an even better I've ne- uh, two-player game. I've never heard of it. Here's the deal. Funnily enough, Power Grid has a lot of replayability built in. But it doesn't have that much setup variability, does it? It really doesn't. You know, the order that the um, um, power plants come out in... And I forget, is there a little bit of uniqueness or randomness to the setup of the board? Or is it just... The, I think it's it's been so long. It's been so many years since I played. Um, power Grid is, you know, by in its base incarnation... Where, yeah, it's pretty much the same game. Oh, maybe I'll get nuclear a little bit sooner this time. Or oh, maybe I'll be frozen out of coal early in the game. But it's still basically the same beats. We're still going to expand the same way. We're still going to try to you know hedge our bets and bid the same way. I, I, to me, it doesn't really feel like, until you throw those robots in, that it has enough built-in ver- uh, replayability. And now, again, I know that's not true. Obviously, people have played thousands of games of Power Grid and keep coming back for more. But that, it, it, to me, it falls under that same aegis of chess. Or Go. Or uh, Othello. Not Othello. What am I thinking of? The Backgammon. Ba- hey, Backgammon's the same freaking game every time, but people play it uh, you know, uh, from the day they're born to the day they die. Oh, man, it's a national pastime in Greece. But anyway... Uh, but for me, it's like, oh, it's just, just pushing these little discs around over and over again. Man, if, if only there were special discs that could be thrown in every once in a while. to Again, to throw that novelty factor in. So I, I don't know anything about Against the Trust. It's interesting. But I have to admit, I mean, I'm not really that keen on going back. I mean, may I, now that I know the existence of it, if I ever find myself in a situation where I might have access to a Power Grid copy, I might try it at a convention or something. I'm intrigued. But again, I did not fall in love with Power Grid enough to want to go back. Okay, let's move on to Johan, who says, Hello! I usually watch the podcast and other YouTube channels that discuss empathy in gaming. And I think the game, uh, that, that concept is a bit too broad. I'm a nurse uh, who has worked in emergency care for many years. Since empathy is something that's very important for in my work, I started wondering why patients would sometimes such high, such, have such negative responses to staff that seemed very empathetic. That's interesting. Um, please continue, Johan. After a while, I was able to identify two types of people. The first one, who I will call the empath, is good at feeling what their patients are feeling. These aren't very common in healthcare, uh, since they tend to be seclusive because they constantly get too many different feelings from people around them. Um, some, though, get addicted to other people's feelings and tend to end up in clinics with lots of emotions. Uh, these can sometimes be a bit scary uh, because they sometimes don't have a lot of emotions themselves but feed on others. But the patients will always love them. The other kind of people, um, I don't have the, uh, the other kind of people don't have the ability to feel other patients' feelings. I'm sure they do have the ability, but they just, it's not something that comes naturally or it's just not first and foremost on their mind or whatever. But, but they do have very strong power of association. If they meet a patient with a broken leg, they'll immediately associate that to themselves. Their leg will hurt, and they'll treat that patient exactly as they'd want to be treated. Unfortunately, this is more of a selfish stance. Patients react in different ways. Some will react precisely like the nurse, expecting that they will love the nurse, but others react differently, Uh, be annoyed with the nurse. The nurse, in that case, uh, could get upset, sad, and don't understand why the patient was so, um, you know, evil to them. Now, 
In board game discussions, I feel like we're always discussed the second type of person. The one who isn't very good at feeling other people's feelings, but uh, more associate what they themselves would feel in similar circumstances and, ca uh, and call that empathy, which in theory it is, but seems like it's a, a selfish empathy. I don't mean to ramble on too long. Too late, yawn. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And by the way, thank you for wearing a mask during COVID. It means a lot for us who worked on the front line. Uh, thank you very much for point. Um, yeah, I certainly got so much hate. Man, just wearing um, you know a mask recently when we, uh, Dan, when I was doing the thing with Dan last month brought out so much hate and anger all over again with people saying, you know, you're actually risking your own life by wearing a mask. It's amazing how much misinformation has been um, you know fed into people's ears. But regardless, yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I I get a lot more of the Rado you're a jerk for wearing a mask and you're going to kill yourself and um, it does nothing and you're a fool. So it's nice to hear uh, a positive, uh, you know, especially from somebody in the medical profession. That's extra awesome. Oh, you have an addendum. An easy way to identify the two types of people you are is to check which character you play in game. The person that feels other uh, people's feelings don't really care who they play outside of artistic preferences. They can identify with everything. The person who is, uh, who associate wants to have a character who they are similar to themselves as a possibility. Okay, that's interesting. So, no, I've, I've certainly um, never really uh, heard of this type of... I mean, I, I can certainly see it makes sense, this, this classification of different types of empathy, because as you yourself said, at the end of the day, it's the end result that matters. Um, am, you know, am I... Uh, in a social situation, able to, uh, I was going to say see the world through somebody else's eyes, but maybe that's not it. So like you said, the second one is more about, oh, I see it through my own eyes, or I interpret your experience through my own lens. So I guess I would call that appreciating um, what someone else is going through, even if it is through my own lens, as opposed to truly being able to think, what, what is that like for them? And, you know, and just, you know, make that up whole cloth. Um, that is interesting. I mean, obviously my first question is, well, what type am I? What type am I indeed? I mean, I, I certainly know that I'm very, very quick to think. Like, I, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're touring the, um, the, the great national parks of southeast Utah. And when we were at Canyonlands, as we drove by the... Uh, the visitor center, you know, which was completely overflowing with cars because we were there on the weekend. And um, so people were having to park out along the dirt road on either side and they were crammed in there. As we went by, we saw one um, car had actually gone into the ditch. They'd gotten too close to the edge when they were trying to park on the side street and ended up going into a little ditch or culvert or something like that. And, you know, there were reels. I mean, they were almost nine degrees straight up and down. And it was a couple of young girls who were in their 20s and you could see them talking on the phone. And, uh, and you know, Jen and I were both like, oh my gosh, that's so terrible. I feel so horrible for them. And I mean, this is like my most recent opportunity to um, exercise empathy. And I, I guess if I think about how I thought about it, my first thought would be, it's so terrible for them because I imagine myself in that circumstance. How would I feel? And I imagined, first of all, all the embarrassment that they had to feel knowing that, you know, I mean, because we were just one of 
dozens, hundreds of cars that were driving by. And it's interesting. Jay and I ran into them at an overlook later, and I recognized them because they made such an indelible imprint in my brain. And I walked up and said, hi, were, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt. Were you the ones who you know had the car go into the ditch by the visitor center? And I'm sorry to interrupt you. And they said, oh my gosh, yes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're okay because I saw your car and it looks like you didn't take any damage. That's wonderful. I feel so much better um, because you know my wife and I, we were driving by and we just felt so terrible. It must have been awful. And they said, thank you, thank you. Because actually the vast majority of people who drove by had their cameras out and were filming it. And they fully expected they were going to have a mi- minor viral outbreak on their end because most people were just pointing and laughing and making fun of them. And that was mind-boggling to me. I mean, because I mean, that would never occur to me in a million years. My first thought when I saw them was, oh my gosh, that's so horrible. They must feel so embarrassed knowing that all these people are driving by. And it turns out I was right. They were, everybody's making fun of them. And they must be terrified how much damage has their car gone through and how much is that going to cost them to get it repaired? Thankfully, the car didn't take any damage. And yo, they're on vacation. Is this ruining their entire... Is this just going to be the defining element? Because they, are they going to be able to get out of there? I mean, are they going to be able to recover from this? I mean, are they going to fight amongst themselves? Is this going to lead? I mean, my brain just spiraled into all these things that could happen if it were me and Jen in that circumstance. And I I don't know. What does that mean? You tell me, Johan, because I do circle back around to say me imagining how I would respond to that. Um, So I guess that means I'm doing an association thing, right? In which case, this other type of, you know, the true empathy you're talking about, I guess I don't know what that is. Um, So I I don't know what to say. Uh, At the end of the day, I do think the more important thing, though, is to, you know, whether you can walk a mile in somebody else's shoes or whether you can just remember your own experience walking through different shoes so you have a more open response to them that hopefully lifts their spirits at the end of the day that's what it's all about i mean you're you're a nurse you're there um you know to help people and lift their spirits as much as anything else so um yeah it's tricky uh yeah i i I don't know those are just some random thoughts on a very fascinating topic thank you uh johan okay then let's go on to vic victory bhg who says i see i didn't skip anything did i uh he's way yeah yeah okay um so in a few years, or, or so, uh, in a few of your reviews you, uh, and your recent conversations with Kimberly regarding Earth, I've mentioned that players have to realize that Game X, whatever we're talking about, is a race game. Uh, Victor, Victory BHD uh, says, I've heard your reviews over the years, and a few reviews come to mind regarding race games, Maracaibo and Corrosion specifically. I've listened to and read reviews where players don't realize the game is a race game and they take uh, the games take too long and the scores are really high. Uh, so, questions. What should games do to make the race element apparent? Should it be mechanisms, themes, something else? Should games have time limits or should players have control over... Uh, sh- should players... Uh, have control over the ending. Not sure if that's a prime feature of race games. Um, or sh- should they not have control? I'm sure is what you meant. Um, it's a good question. Honestly, the number one thing developers have to do, and they never, ever do this. They, it's, it's, there's this weird attitude 
There's so many weird things about board game rule books. And one of them is, oh, for the love of God, do not ever run the risk of spoiling the discovery of the game for the players. Um, don't put strategy tips in. Players are, it's going to be so much more fun and satisfying for players to lose miserably over and over and over again as they, um, as some, as they go up against some other player who did figure out those strategies, who already knows those strategies, or, to, or they're just going to struggle and try to figure out why can't things click because they haven't figured out the strategy and they got to play the game five times. You can see I'm being sarcastic. I think that is a ridiculous attitude for rulebook writers to take. I think rulebooks should um, tear down the, the rulebook equivalent of the fourth wall and talk directly to the player, directly to the reader, and say, hey, by the way, here's a few things you might bump into. And we just want... you know, The kind of stuff that if I were teaching a player in real life, I would warn them, hey, by the way, this is a race game. It can it can sneak up on you really quick. If other players are going quick and you're taking your own sweet time, you might find yourself very frustrated that they trigger the end of the game before your um your 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 ultimate goals can come to plan. So remember that. It's a race. Never forget you're racing to do whatever it is you're doing. I think the rules should come right out and say that. And they should also, and bear in mind, because this is a race game, if all the players at the table don't treat it like that and take their own sweet time, there is a risk the game will go on too long, and you may find that frustrating also. Now, it's tricky. Because the one thing you do not want to put, if there's one word you don't want to put in your rulebook, it's the word frustrating. Uh, because you don't even want to raise the specter of that. But you've got to. You've got to be open and honest with your readers and let them know. And I think that's the important thing. Now, if you're not going to do that, and, and nobody does, uh, yeah, every game you talked about, Maracaibo, Corrosion, Earth, none of these rule books warn players that, by the way, you could have a really bad time playing our game if you forget that it's a race game. And it's on the rule book writers for failing players. You know, I mean, I don't blame... Um, you know, I mean, I remember, you're right, Corrosion was a really good example. A lot of people said, oh my god, our first game of Corrosion took four hours. This was entirely wrong. And it's like, yeah, because nobody was racing. And everybody was just like goofing around. And the game, you know, the game doesn't have its own internal clock. And I don't blame those players. I blame the, the producers of the rulebook for not telling players. It's, it's, it would be like saying, uh, like writing a rulebook... And not telling people, um, I'm trying to think of something so incredibly obvious that how could you not tell them that? that you know, not telling people, hey, everybody claim a, 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 you know, a, a victory point marker and put it on the victory point track. Because they assume, oh, everybody knows there's a victory, there's a track of numbers around the corner, there's these little discs. We don't have to tell players, they just know that those are victory point tracks and they should use them to keep track of their points. And if a rule book didn't say that... That would be criminal. And for me, it's the same thing. And it's the same attitude of, well, it's it's self-evident. You know, players should discover this. Yeah, it's wrong. So, but barring that, I think there's certainly nothing wrong. And I've mentioned this in games uh, of this ilk. Hey, put a freaking timer in. If you don't want to warn people that they're playing a race, then put in a timer yourself. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to do. Uh, the, tr the problem with those is timers just for their own sake, it becomes a little bit of busy work that, hey, at the end of every round, um, when the, uh, when the whatchamacallit, the, the first player marker moves clockwise to the next player, 
move, you know, mark that you're in round 18 of 25. See, that's going to be a bit ridiculous. Keeping track of five rounds is one thing, but keeping track of 25 rounds, that's pretty tough. Which is why it's more important to just educate your players. That's what developers should do. They don't do it. I don't know why. Alrighty. Continuing on. Um, the other question I had was, people say games are point salads, where they can score in many different ways, and more often, they seem to be high-scoring affairs. What's your opinion of high-scoring versus high-scoring games versus low scores? Can low scores be point salads? Do high-scoring games give players more agency to strategize victories? Or can low-scoring games allow that as well? Again, your view of Earth made me think on this uh, question. As you mentioned, one game where scores were over 300. Yeah, that was a game where nobody was racing. Um, uh, same with Maracaibo, where that can happen. Hmm. Okay. Well, first of all, a point-salad game... A point style game, its definition, I suppose, just means it's a game where you get points for doing anything, right? Uh, that's generally... First of all, let's not forget, it's a largely derogatory term. It was originally thought of as a pejorative, saying, oh, this is one of those point salads where it doesn't matter what I do because I'll get points no matter what. And, it's, and that's absurd. That is a ridiculous, wrong-headed assumption that people make when they use point salad dismissively, often for you know really wonderful euros like from Stefan Feld and whatnot. Yes, in Trajan, there's a lot of different ways to score points. So you could call it a point salad because there's points coming at you every which way to Sunday, or forum Trajan for that matter. But the thing is that, first of all, the pejorative is wrong because winning does not mean just... I mean, because people think, oh, because it's a point salad, it literally doesn't matter what choices I make because in the end, I, I'll get an equal number of points regardless. And that's just fundamentally wrong-headed. So let's just put that aside. Uh, because obviously it's a good term and I like it. You know, it's it's a good thing to specify. Yeah, a uh, point salad is a game where there's lots of different sources of points. So with that in mind, could you have a low-scoring point salad game? Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, if you have a game that's going to last five rounds, if players are going to take, I mean, what am I thinking? I'm thinking of simplicity. I just uh, talked about that in a video not too long ago. The game simplicity. It's a little Sim City game. Tile layer. You literally get to lay five tiles. Ten if you're playing the two-player game, because you control two players worth of stuff. Um, but either five or ten tiles over the course of the game. Every one of those tiles has different ways to score. And uh, but they kept it really simple. Um, you know, it's you know, there's like some simple majority stuff. But I could have imagined a much more elaborate version of simplicity, which wouldn't be able to be called that, where um, tile each tile has like in implicitly six different things it could do for you, right? One based on its location relative to other tiles. One based on its location relative to where it is in the overall city board. Three based on um, you know, actual. Actions, it, or may say two. Two, that it has actions based on it. One, based on whether it's played early in the game or late in the game. And one, because it has some base value on it. You know, anywhere from one to six points on it, right? Let's just say that. That each one tile you place, and you're only going to place five tiles over the course of the game. Each one of them has six different metrics, six different ways it could score you points. And even though you're only going to make five decisions in that game, 
I would still call it. And you're probably not going to make a very high-scoring game because in pl- the reason point salad games are high-scoring games is because they tend to go on the long end. They just tend to. Um, so you have more time to explore and leverage and get really good at one or two of the seven things you could do and really push those hard. But I can imagine a short game that is every bit as point salady, where no matter what, this tile, I'm only going to place five tiles. Each one of these tiles is going to score points in different ways. That's a point salad, strictly speaking. I don't think it would feel like it, though. Although, honestly, what I just described sounds like a really awesome game that I would very much like to play. If there are any um, burgeoning game designers out there, it's yours. Run with it. Let's make that game. So, um, yeah, I think, for the most part, High scores and point salad do tend to go hand in hand. Um, Not because of the pejorative, hey, you get points no matter what you do, but because the developers want to give you a sandbox to play in long enough so you can really leverage all those different um, point revenue streams. So I I think that's pretty much how it would go. Okay, and I think that is it for me. Yes, we are done. That's it for the game questions, folks. There weren't really any um, of you know, stuff I just did. I didn't think any of those really jumped out as being gen questions. So, if you're done um, with gamey type stuff, uh, then you can get off now. But please send more questions to questions at raw.com. Whether it's about games, about the channel, about life, the universe, and everything, whatever it is, send them to questions at raw.com. And so we can talk next month. Um, and thank you for watching. Talk to you there so long. Bye bye. And now, if you stick around, Jen will be joining us and we'll get into the personal QA. Okay, everybody, we are back. It's time for the personal stuff. Sorry, no uh, gaming questions for Jen this month. Folks, if that makes you sad, send in some questions for this lady right here. Honey, proof of life. Oh, hi. There she is. Uh, For folks who are watching instead of listening, Jen is joining me. We've got a bunch. I think we have more personal questions than actual game questions this month. So weird. But anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get right to it. Starting with Daniel, who has a bunch of questions. First of all, what... Or our thoughts on Hogwarts Legacy being one of the most sold games on Steam and Epic. Are all those people uh, buying the game transphobic or just ignorant? <coughs> um, actually, Daniel, I would say a lot of them, there's a third option. They're selfish. They know. They know full well all the problems associated with J.K. Rowling and how she has embolded anti-trans movements around the world, how she regularly um, you know, hangs out with people who are doing real harm in the world. Yeah, J.K. herself is not doing anything directly other than emboldening all of these really bad actors and making life much worse for trans people around the world for no good reason. Um, she is the ultimate example of ignorance, and uh, I think while there's a lot, of course, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are loving Hogwarts Legacy who just have no idea at all because they're just not plugged into the zeitgeist, and that's understandable. Um, I mean, actually, there's a question coming a little bit later that I hadn't heard of that I had to go look up. Uh, so it's it's understandable. And yeah, and again, you know, what's Hanlon's razor? Uh, always never ascribe to malice that which can be uh, explained by ignorance. So I think for a lot of folks, that's the reality. Of course, there are some people who are like, yeah, screw the trans. I'm buying this because I want their rights to be taken away. And I, you know, there's going to be plenty of people like that too. But I think there's a lot of folks who just know, yeah, she said some really bad stuff, but you know what? 
I really want to play this game anyway. And I know full well that me playing this game sends the message that I care more about my own personal enjoyment than I do about, you know, the human rights of uh, marginalized people who need my support. And those people, they're just selfish a-holes. And a lot of people are, are, are going to be that way. Now, some of them are going to be ignorant because they're going to be, oh, what did she, did she really say anything that was that bad? Was it really matter? It's just a game. And again, that's going to come back to ignorance. But yeah, a lot of people know better and they're playing it anyway. So there's a whole spectrum. Honey Pie, I assume you have nothing to say about this other than it all makes you very sad. Yes. Then we'll move on to something that'll make you a bit happier. Although I don't know if we can do this one right now. We might have to put it in the spoiler section. Picard! <laughs> what would be the three things that make season three better than the previous season? Well, of course, getting the band back together. Which, of course, everybody knows. Uh, that, there's no spoilers there. So that is your number one thing. You know the interesting thing about that is? Yeah. The reason it's taken three seasons to happen yeah. is because Patrick Stewart said right up front, yeah, I'll only do this show if we don't do this, if it is not a reunion show. Oh, really? I want this to be completely new characters, completely new stories, completely new adventures. Okay, we'll put in, uh, yo, the original series has just like a tiny little bit of, hey, yo, here's a few characters from the original series, but yeah. you know, very, very little. And you say, I, I do not want to get the whole band back together. I want this to be something completely new. Oh, wow. And um, it's only now because this is the third and final season of the show. He said, I guess, I don't think I've ever heard an interview with her. He said, I relented. Uh, I'll give the people what they wanted. Because, you know, I mean, everybody wanted it to be right from the get-go. Hey, let's get the whole band back together in season one. But Patrick Stewart stood opposed. But anyway, that's your number one. Can you say, because I kind of know what your favorite stuff is, can you say it without spoilers? What uh. your number two is? I don't know. We can just put this in the spoiler section. Let's put it in the spoiler section. All righty. We are going to control copy, and we're going to look away from the dog pictures. I'm looking at a live dog outside. All right. There's a dog outside. Control V. All right. So we'll come back to this one, Daniel, in the spoiler section after you do all the other things. So, uh, folks, uh, only listen to that at the end if you're actually caught up on Picard Season 3. Uh, next up, Honey Pie, question number three. Rookie question Ooh. number one. Ooh. What's your favorite thing about The Rookie? For Daniel, it's how every character is important and interesting and the way they replaced all the people who left the show. New characters as good as, if not better. Um, the, cough, Harper, cough. Uh, this is, of course, true for all seasons apart from the third. Wow, Daniel really knows. I, I couldn't tell you what happened from one season to another in The Rookie, but... Uh, right. And, and Nolan, despite him apparently being a jerk to um, one of his co-stars on Castle. Uh, that's, I had no idea. Um, never watched Castle. Well, actually, I think we watched a couple episodes of Castle, couple. and it was like, yeah. eh, this was not worth watching. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, though, so what is your favorite thing about The Rookie, Honey Pie? <clears throat> the well, TV show. obviously, Officer Nolan is one of my favorite things. I think his character... Because he's just so perfect. He's absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. But he's not as perfect as... Um, the rookie on the rookie feds, who yeah. is beyond perfect, yeah, who is overly perfect. Yeah. yeah. Yes, Nolan does make mistakes. Yes. He has made plenty of mistakes, and he has always come back stronger and learned from them. And yeah, but that's he, a he strong be, element of his character. Too. He seems to be a very caring human person, mm -hmm. and I really like that about him. Yeah. Um, let's see. What are my favorite things about the rookie? Um, yeah, I think I think you're right. It's nice that all of the characters have their own arcs. I mean, it could have been that. Lucy was always just going to be another one of the rookies that, and he slept with her for a while, or they slept together for a while, and you know she never quite got her own line. But she's got she's panned out and mm -hmm. fleshed out and everything. Mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, let's see what else. There are uh, there are sometimes the shows when they do these um, Hollywood 
exclusive. That next interviews. question has to do with that. Oh god, I hate those. Yes. I absolutely hate them. I just like there's no point in me watching <coughs> that. It's ridiculous. Um, uh, right. So I, I would say the so storytelling more or less is also okay. pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, I, I mean, I don't know if I like the show enough that I'd be watching it. I mean, we started watching it because mom really liked it. Yeah. And then when mom passed on, we kept watching it because uh, you really like it. I think yeah. it's I think it's good. I think it's certainly well put together. Um, I think my, the best moments are there. I forget. I, I couldn't tell you which season it was, but the season where they actually reckoned with um, you know police brutality and abuse. Uh, you know, uh, because there was one bad cop. Uh, played by Brandon Routh, but you know he was obviously a stand-in, and everybody had to come to terms with that. And I mean, I, I thought that was handled actually really deftly, uh, all things considered. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think they've often done a really great job of action sequences, especially I remember um, you know some of the shootouts in the first season, uh, you know, which is you know, so pablum, it's so pat. I mean, you see it so often, but I was like, wow, this is actually really engaging. There, there's actual real tension. There's stakes here, uh, um, you know, and, and that's kind of gone away because nowadays. It's like there are only seven cops in the entirety of LA, and they are always the seven cops who will show up for everything, and it just gets so ridiculous. But um, yeah, I mean the characters are 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 well fleshed out, and they're charismatic actors. Sure, uh, like I said, I don't think it'd be uh, I don't think the show'd be good enough for me to watch on my own. But I, I enjoy it. I, I give it like a seventy uh, percent attention. I have a ranking system you know, for all the shows we watch with Jen. Is it a 70%? Is this a 30%? Oh, this is a 90%. And I would give Rookie a 60-70%. Um, but I like it. But anyway, the next question is Rookie question number two. People seem to really hate the episodes with the film crew, the reality-style episodes. Uh, the ratings on the Internet Movie Database are below or around fives out of tens. I personally found them entertaining, despite disliking reality shows. What are your thoughts? I hate it. Hate it. Hate them. Hate, hate them. them. And I don't, well, I guess I don't watch Why do you hate them so much? Oh, I just, I feel so gossipy and so, uh, I don't know. See, in theory, it's trying to (laughs) present you with another side of these characters that you love. Where they're, um, you know, where they're kind of... Yeah, I guess that's part of it, too. Like, that Lucy becomes kind of this fangirl of of things Mm -hmm. when she's being interviewed. And she goes from being a very strong, directed... um, stable person to being oh well this and that and uh-huh. I, I don't know I guess I just feel like it trivializes everything hmm. okay I don't like it I would say yeah that I mean for those episodes get probably a 10 to 15 percent I don't Jen. even she'll just do something else and oh just in case there's something that happened that's important because you know they do have ongoing storylines yeah. but yeah you vehemently hate them so much I think they're well done I appreciate that it's it's tricky I do think Jen makes a very good point uh, they suddenly, a lot of times, they start acting way out of character for comedy. And honestly, I wish, I think they'd be a lot better if they played them straight. The problem is, every time they do it, they try to do everything for laughs. And that's the problem. The rea- real reality shows, um, you know, I mean, the character, I mean, they aren't, you know, yucking it up and doing silly stuff. Or, you know, of course, real reality shows like this are... Present. I mean, they're, they're, I, I would say it's being true to the format, but I think it's unfortunate that it's not true to the rookie. And I would like to see them take the opportunity to say, hey, if we're going to do this, let's show you how good a reality show really could be. Mm. If we actually took the subject matter seriously instead of just tried to sensationalize everything. You know, because, they're, they're, you know, I mean, I guess you could say they're maybe doing a parody of real reality shows. And I guess there's some merit to that. But for the most part, I just think they're aping it. And it's, it's inconsistent with the stuff that makes the show good. 
Alrighty, um, we're done with the rookie. Next thought, and this is I had to go look up. What are my thoughts about the CNN article about digital blackface? I'm sure you've never heard of it. I had not heard of it either. Maybe I would have heard it if we hadn't been on the road for the last few weeks, but I looked it up, and uh, having now read the original article and looking at the uh, firestorm of controversy, what it looks to me like, Daniel, is a black journalist made a good point and a whole bunch of right-wing um, white people came out of the woodwork and said, oh, we don't like that point he made. It makes us uncomfortable. Let's mock and ridicule him. That's what it looked like to me. Um, the reality is, yeah, I, I personally, back when I was on Twitter, I stopped doing Twitter a while ago, and I stopped doing Facebook even before that. But occasionally I would try to, hey, let me put in a meme. This is going to be funny. Let me say, um, you know, snarky laughter. And inevitably... Uh, the, the the whole point of the article was, um, you know, you know, blackfaces, of course, yeah. right? You know, white actors putting on blackface, you know, uh, culturally appropriating, and and at the same time trivializing and marginalizing, you know, uh, black uh, people, uh, and you know, entertainment styles and all of that. That uh, a lot of memes you see, a lot of animated gifs on Twitter are of black people saying "wah wah wah" and doing bug eye stuff and doing. Um, stuff that kind of trivializes and, again, culturally appropriates, uh, you know, does everything the blackface did, but they're just doing it in animated GIF form. Because, I mean, and nobody has a problem with the animated GIF, I don't know who it is, of, I think he's like a rapper or something like that, when, oh, I want to look like I'm really smart, they put out the GIF that goes, see how smart I am? Everybody loves that one because it's actually a positive, uplifting one, as opposed to one that just plays on tired, stereotypical tropes. And it gives people the opportunity to let out their inner black person kind of a thing. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I, I thought it made good points. And uh, Does this have anything to do with the two black um, state... No, no, I, this happened before all that stuff. Okay. Yeah, um, I think, I think that is. So I thought the article made good points, and the vast majority of people who are arguing against it need to do a little bit of self-reflection. Um, because... If dismissing it out of hand is kind of his whole point that the act of doing this dismisses and um, you know marginalizes black people and keeps them in their lane um, you know with again stereotypical um, you know sometimes racist tropes but oh but I'm doing it as a joke so it's okay oh. so yeah I largely agreed with the article okay um, let's see number six. Uh, Jen just uh, tapped me on the shoulder, so I'm going to pause for a second. Oh, don't pause. I have something I wanted to say. Oh, no, Jen had something to say. Okay, we're coming back to number five. Yes, honey pie. Well, I heard you speaking earlier What's about um, the girls whose car tipped oh, into the... Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and how the majority of people, they said, were just laughing as they were going by. Yeah, and taking pictures. Yeah. And videos to post. Yeah, so I wonder if it isn't still kind of a reflection back on that whole social... What's a... You know, what's... Cool. I mean, I, when I was in high school, it was cool to burn people. Yes. And you would, like, burn them, and you'd put them down. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I just, I never liked that. It made me feel really kind of dirty and yucky inside. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if it's that same tendency of humans to just laugh at other people's misfortune or, you know, get one up on them somehow or another versus being an empathetic, decent human. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Could be. Social media sucks. I walked away from Twitter. I've, uh, you know, because actually, I mean, 
I haven't walked away from Facebook, although I should. But the thing is, when I post a new video on Facebook, that gets hundreds of additional views to the video. When I did it on Twitter, that got maybe like a dozen, and it just wasn't worth it. And I did not want to support, I didn't want to support Elon Musk and what he's doing there, uh, because every time I post, I am just helping him. And uh, yeah, social media is gross, and humanity has a long way to go to understand how to effectively and empathetically communicate with this new medium. Okay, anyway. number six. Yes. Yep. Oh, so that was. I just wanted to say that. Okay. Tie that back into the game section. There you go. Well done. Full circle. Alrighty. Number six. Do you think that indicting Trump on such a small, and by that I mean appearing small and petty to some people, charge will only end up making him politically stronger in the long run? No. He's not politically strong anyway. He has never been politically strong. He has always been a political weakling. He has a diehard cohort of of the uh, right wing, of conservative uh, people who will follow him to their graves. It's about 30%. Don't forget, he won. He beat Hillary on a technicality. He lost the, the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, the, the popular vote? Yeah. He lost the popular vote by a huge margin. It's absurd that he became president when he lost by such an incredibly huge margin. He only won because of, again, a technicality of the stupid, ridiculous American electoral system. And it was a few thousand votes that uh, swinged it. And, um, you know, never mind the fact that, oh, in the final days of his campaign, uh, what's it? Uh, oh, so much crap. The, no, the, the FBI guy. Uh, Comey comes out and says, well, we're having to reopen the uh, investigation. And then only like, what was it? Like two or three days before voting, when it was too late to make a difference, he said, never mind. It was fine. Well, I shouldn't even have mentioned it. It was stupid. But meanwhile, Trump gets his grab him by the pee. And that was a huge backlash. And at the, right at that point, he pays two different porn stars a ton of money to be quiet so that they won't uh, you know, reveal all his porn uh, affairs. Uh, he did. And, um, and he just barely skates by. If those things had been as widely reported on as Hillary's complete um, BS stuff that was proven by actual officers of the law to be BS, but nope, that's what everybody focused on because the media wrongly thought that Trump could never win. And they thought, oh, well, let's just go where the ratings are and let's just trump things up, literally. Um, you know, but for a few little tweaks, he wouldn't have won that. And since then, he has lost Congress. Since then, um, all of everybody he almost everybody he backs ends up losing. He's a loser. He keeps losing over and over and over and over again. He only won one time on a technicality. So, no. Do I think this will help? No, because all it does. I mean, it makes that thirty percent even more worked up. But it doesn't grow that 30% at all. And if anything, it makes more people say, wow, he really is a criminal. They've actually proven it now. It doesn't do him any good. It riles up the base. But the base is 30% of the electorate. And as long as um, people come out to vote, Trump won't win again. Fingers crossed. Alrighty, uh, number seven. As an avid sports lover, uh-oh, I agree with everything you said. Oh, this is obviously the follow-up from the sports rant. Uh, it doesn't apply to me, but the vitriol I see online or the abhorrent fan behavior during games is mind-boggling. What I do disagree with is the extent to which professional sports is responsible for this, um, since many other aspects of society, birth, tribalism, uh, a similar, even worse kind. Yeah, that's certainly true. I, I, I can't I, I can't disagree with that. It's, um, what do you call it? Uh... It's a symptom, not the disease, right? Disease is tribalism. It's just, 
Sports are so stupid and meaningless and insignificant. For us to get so tribal over those, it's just mind-boggling to me. Um, you might as well just get so upset over your favorite Powerpuff Girl. Why? You know, we might as well have riots on that too. It's, uh, yeah. um, but it, it's a fair point. It's it's really, uh, yeah. I mean, all the negative. Sturm and Drang that comes from sports is really just reflective of, you know, deep down lizard brain primal instincts that we still carry around because once upon a time, tribalism is what let us climb to the top amongst all the other Homo erectus and, you know, and all, all, all the other ones. We, stu- we stuck together, got rid of them, and that led us to the top. We don't need it anymore, but we're still hardwired to do it. And the thing is, sports is an incredibly glaring example of how it brings, it can bring out the worst in us. And it's so trivial and inconsequential. The fact that for my entire life, and probably my parents' entire life, the evening news gives an equal amount of time to sports scores as it does to world events <laughs> is absurd. It is so inconsequential and meaningless. But, yeah. But, you're, but I, I completely agree. You're right. It's The real problem isn't sports, per se. Um, gosh, what was it? There was a, I, I remember seeing a cartoon many, many years ago uh, about... Uh, or no, it was, it was, uh, maybe it was a series that, you know... Or no, it was, it was South Park. There was an episode of South Park where somehow they ended up cutting way to the future, thousands of years in the future, and um, everybody had become an atheist, but uh, we just found a new thing to be tribal over because everybody was an atheist, either because of Al Gore or because of something else that made everybody an atheist. Yeah. And so there was still just as much Sturm and Drang, because we still found a reason to say, oh, well, you're, you're, you, you have stars on your belly, so you're yeah. a star-bellied Sneech. I mean, Dr. Seuss had it right when we were kids. <laughs> yep. It's just sports. It's a. It's. I mean, ah. Uh, all right. And it's a shame too because sports should be at sports. I only talked about sports at its worst. I didn't talk about sports at its best. To be fair, and sports at its best is a celebration of our bodies, of what amazing things we can do, mm-hmm. how far we can push ourselves, what hurdles we can overcome, and that's beautiful. And of course, there's also esprit de corps and camaraderie and overcoming adversity, and that's all wonderful. It's just a shame that um, for every one of those, we get a half a dozen riots when a team wins or loses. Doesn't matter. <laughs> um, right. Anyway, though. Uh, next up, number eight. Uh, I said we should listen to transgender people on trans issues. Uh, to which you reply, what if they disagree? I don't know who they is. If they disagree with the majority, I assume the trans people with the majority narrative. For example, what if they don't think J.K. Rowling is transphobic? So are you saying, should we listen to trans people who think J.K. Rowling is, is not transphobic? Sure, listen to whoever you want. Um, but if you want to have a well-rounded understanding of the situation... My point stands, yeah, sure, listen to transphobic people who say they love J.K. Rowling and she's totally misunderstood. That's fine. But spend an equal amount of time talking, listening to the people who say these are the concrete examples of the harm she causes. Um, you know, both sides it and you know, try to come to a conclusion. But I mean, I have listened uh, for quite a while. Again, Jesse Gender is great. ContraPoints is also great. But I have watched videos from the other side. I find it very, very difficult because they very quickly degenerate. They're, they're so dismissive. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, uh, go ahead. L- listen to anybody and everybody you can. 
but do not dismiss out of hand. If people are saying, these actions are hurting me, I'm being harmed, don't dismiss that out of hand. Try to understand where they're coming from. Try to express some empathy. Circles, circles, turn back to circles. Alrighty, uh, Johan, uh, empathy. Alrighty, so uh, David says, Hi, Rado. I understand you're not a fan um, of either one, religion or sports. <laughs> I did listen to this month's podcast. Could you specifically answer the question, which is a greater detriment to society? I apologize, David, or I don't know if you asked originally. Yeah, I, I, I think I had intended to, and I pulled that one aside, but then I just kind of got wrapped up in the overall thing and didn't get into specifics. Yes, of course, religion has done more damage to humanity than sports. Of course. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, sports ain't got nothing on the Holocaust. Sports ain't got nothing on the Holy Crusades. And uh, people say, the Holocaust, that has nothing to do with religion. The Holocaust was the systematic extermination of Jewish people. Jewish people for, uh, are systematically exterminated because Christians believe that they killed Christ. It's all stupid fairy tales. I mean, gosh, if anything... I was just talking about how, why are we getting so worked up over sports? Mm-hmm. It's so ridiculous. At least sports are real. At least... <laughs> there's a team. There's a team. And there's, a there's, there's, you know, there's feats of strength. Yep. There's, I mean, something actually happened. <laughs> As opposed to religion, where it's all make-believe. The, the, um, you know, the... The, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost is just as concrete and real as Odin and Loki and Thor. You might as well worship them. And, um, and, and 10,000 times the pain and hardship. Now, to be fair, religion brings a lot of good into the world, too. It um, brings out our better angels. I mean, Jen's best friend in the world. Uh, you know, they're a devoutly religious fella, as are his kids. His kids have actually traveled to, you know, their, their local churches, organized trips to build schools in, you know, impoverished Africa. countries and all kinds of stuff like yeah, that. That's great. That's amazing. But still... That stuff is inconsequential compared to the Holocaust. Uh, you know, well, com- and that I just saw a comic on Facebook saying, oh, yeah? you know, the the men wearing dresses who are harming our children are not um, drag queens. They're people. You know, oh, priests, the popes, and sure. the priests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not popes, I don't maybe, but okay, um, yeah. cardinals and all of that. Yes, those are the men in dresses who are harming our children. Yep. Yep, 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 yeah. I mean, not my children. Yeah, I mean, uh, sports. I'm not a fan of it, but man. Uh, religion says, "Hold my beer. Let me uh, let me let me show you how it's done." Sports. Uh, when we find a way to rip people apart and enhance tribalism, um, you know, yes. I mean, I mean, you know, religion is the original. It's it's number two. First, we had literal real species tribalism, and then okay, well, they're done. Now we're all the same. Well, we could decide to kill each other over which sun god we worship. When in fact it's just a big ball of gas in the sky, we could do that now. Mm. Let's do that for a few millennia. That sounds great. So yeah, sports. At least it's real. So sports wins. Alrighty. Je- unless you have anything to add to that. Hang no, on. I think you've done it. Jeff says in previous podcasts, uh, you mentioned that you've adopted two. We've adopted two pit bull mixes. They're some of the sweetest dogs we've known. And uh, they found their forever home with us. Pit bulls, as you probably know, uh, have acquired an undeservedly bad reputation due to horrible owners that train them for nothing more than fighting. However, they are often referred to as nanny dogs. Yes, Jen has talked about this on the uh, podcast in the past. I hadn't known about it myself. And our experience bears that out. wonder if you have any similar positive experiences uh, with the breed, knowing that you lean heavily towards beagles. 
that we have any positive experience with, with pit, pit bulls specifically. Oh, I think they're wonderful dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any direct experience with pit bulls? Just I love I love them. I, I, <laughs> when I see them in dog parks, I go up and I talk to them, their owners, and yeah, see if I so can sweet. pet them. And they're just oh, I love their big old smiles. Yep, they're wonderful dogs. Yeah, yeah. Um, my brother and his son uh, both had pit bulls, so I, I I spent a fair bit of time playing with them and and all that. Oh. Yeah, they're just wonderful. So just sweet and charming. I mean, they are literally charming creatures. Uh, yeah, it's hard yeah, not to love them. They're lovely. And yeah, it's just a shame that, yep, that there is this thing, the societal thing, where, oh yeah, they can be trained to be brutal and killers, and that's not the fault of the dog at all. Nope. Any dog can be trained to be a brutal killer. We could train Daisy over there to be. It. She wouldn't be very good at it, but we could do, we could try. She'd waggle herself on over. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, somehow. Yeah, no, I mean, no, they're, they're, they're fantastic. They're wonderful. Um, all right. Oh. Our perspective is that how you treat your dog ultimately molds their personality. If you're kind, affectionate, and loving towards a pit bull or any breed, they'll often mirror it right back to you. There are exceptions, of course, but uh, what are your thoughts on breeds having negative reputations? And would pit bulls have garnered this bad rap had their breed been named something different like Fuzzle Ploops or Puffy Huggin' Kisses? <laughs> um, interesting. Because a lot of people just call them pitties, or yeah, um, there's a couple of other names for them too, um, like a Staffy, Stafford, Staffordshire Terriers. I think those all of those kinds of dogs are sort of pit bull um, adjacent. So I'm not sure. It kind of brings to mind when um, German Shepherds were really named Alsatian after World War II because people were actually harming because, German yes, Shepherds uh, yeah. because their name is German. Yep, I know. Um, it, it has nothing to do with the dog. It has everything to do with the human. And if you've ever watched any Caesar Milan or any other dog training, um, people who are into the behaviorism of dogs, you can you can have a dog that's fearful and um, aggressive and it, give it to a different human, and it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always reflecting back on the human. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. Uh, it's interesting. While Jim was just talking, I just went and looked. Pit bulls were originally called um, bulldogs. Oh. That is their original name. And you can see that is not trying to be reflective of their temperament or personality, but rather just their physical stature. Yeah. You know, because they kind of stand like bulls and all of that. Sure. And it's interesting. Um, where was it? Uh, in 1898, Chauncey Z. Bennett founded the United Kennel Club and renamed Bulldogs to be American Pit Bull Terriers. Mm. So, uh, Chauncey. Whatever, Chauncey. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, you're right. I mean, pit bull is a, yeah, I mean, pit and bull. That sounds, it, it is, it is an unfortunate name. Chauncey, you should have done better, pal. Bulldog was perfectly fine. Um, I wonder if bulldog with a, was more appropriate to the English bulldog with their other droopy I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure Chauncey, that. if he were here, he'd have a reason. I'm sure it would make sense. Yeah. And we'd say, Chauncey, could you just please look forward a hundred years? And uh, call them American cute bull terriers. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Could Smiley you please call terriers. them puffy hug and kisses? <laughs> puffy hug and kiss terriers. Smile that would terriers. be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Branding is huge. Yes. And it is very unfortunate they have. I mean, what? What is the more? What dog has a more aggressive sounding name? Rottweiler, I suppose, yeah, yeah. because it sounds nastier than it does Doberman. in the original German. I mean. I, I, I don't think there's anything implicitly aggressive sounding about Doberman. It's just there are already preconceived notions about Doberman, and therefore it's applied. Uh, but Rot has—I mean, Rot, uh, uh, Rot, I, yeah. But I mean, Rot. I assume that's just red in German, right? Is, yeah. Yeah, and it was Rote. All right. Where does the ter- origin of Rottweiler? Origin of Rottweiler name. 
Do do do. Yes, we know it's from Germany. But why are they called what Rottweilers? Make, uh, it was known as the, the Rottweil Butcher Dog. A butcher bred type dog purely for performance and usefulness. All right. Uh, the old, oh, it was a, they come from the city of Rottweil, where they were a, a particular butcher bred that line. So they're called Rottweilers because that's the name of that town. Yep. But it still sounds kind of like, oh, Rot. Well, it sounds German. And to English, or to American ears, yeah. German just implicitly sounds harsh and aggressive because we haven't gotten over World War II, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, you're right. They, they are definitely, they suffer from bad, 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 bad branding. And uh, I further the uh, the uh, rebranding to Fizzle Ploops, 100%. <laughs> Question two. I think you've mentioned bike riding is something you and Jen enjoy. Have you heard of Ragbri? R-A-G-B-R-A-I. No. No. Since you have an, an, a new active RV lifestyle, it might be something you'd enjoy. It's a break from the weekly grind. It's not a competitive bike race, but rather a bike ride event spanning several days across the state of Iowa. Oh. You stop in small towns along a planned route, and there are roadside points of interest to keep you going. Beekman's homemade ice cream being the most notable for us. Ooh. Unbelievably delicious homemade ice cream from actual motor-driven ice cream makers on every day of the ride. Cool. Or perhaps something uh, closer to you, like the uh, Mount Baker Hill Climb. Or even closer, Ramrod, right around Mount Rainier in one day. Here's my problem with all of that stuff. <laughs> that all sounds lovely, but um, when we lived in England... I uh, biked to work, and that, I lived in Guilford, and I worked in Bromley. And if you looked it up on a map, you'd say, there is no way you bike that every day. No, I didn't. But I, I rode the train into London, and I biked through London. And when I first started doing it, I think I got off at Clapham Junction and then biked from Clapham Junction to Bromley, I think is how I first started. Uh, there was and something, yeah. When you that, and that was like, I forget, like a 70-minute bike ride there and back. Because it just allowed me to avoid going into London proper and having to make transfers and all that. And I really enjoyed biking. I was having great time. And I pushed myself too hard and I screwed up my right knee. And I went to, uh, what do you call it? Physical therapy. Physical therapy for months. And did all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And it never really did anything. So I cannot do any serious bike riding at all. I Ever since then. And that's what? It's probably 10 years, years ago now? 20 years. Since we've been away from England for 10 Jeez, uh, wow. yeah, 15, 20 years, something like that. That I, I, So the bikes we bought for our that are hanging off the back of our RV right now are e-bikes, which we're very much enjoying. Yeah. And um, But yeah, I mean, all those things sound great, but I, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like they probably frown on e-bikers showing up doing it because it's kind of against the, yeah. the you and the machine and the road kind of thing. And I physically just can't do it anymore because my right knee um, literally will not let me. If I bike for more than 20 minutes on a regular bike, um, on anything other than downhill slopes, uh, my knee feels like it's going to break in two. And it just, that's just the way it is. Uh, but would you like to do any of those things, Honey Pie? No. No, okay. Why not? Um, you don't have the bad knee. No, it's just too much, too, too much and too organized. All right. I like to just go out and have fun. Okay. Number three, any plans to travel north in the RV? Vancouver, Whistler, Chilliwack? Even further north? If so, we're in Mount Vernon, Burlington area Yay. and be happy to provide a stop along the way if needed. In one of our more recent in one of our more recent podcasts, you went into some detail regarding professional sports and the net neg oh uh, alright. Okay. Uh about the net negative effects. I agree with much of what you stated, but also wonder if you were being a bit selective by singling out pro and college sports. Oh, God. This is a whole separate question. I don't know how that happened. Look at that. Let's go just make this a new one. So, um, yeah, are we going to be going north, Honey Pie? 
I do not believe soon. that we are going to be going north anytime soon. We were going to. Uh, because Jen's sister and husband and niece and nephew are going You're something. My what did I say? My sister and my brother-in-law and their family. Well, I said your sister and her husband. No, you said it. It doesn't matter. Regardless. Yes. We have a tape now to prove it. <laughs> you can listen to it later. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, we were going to go up. Um, they were going to do Banff and that mm-hmm. area. Which is a ski resort in Canada, I guess, or something? Yeah, it's just an area. Um, but they, they've had such a hard time even booking the tickets that they want, and they're going to rent a truck with a camper on it. Mm. Um, so us driving our big 30-foot motorhome up there, if they can't find camping spots for their little truck ex- you know, excitement, then there's no way we can. And so we've kind of given up on it. Yeah. There's just... And the other problem with going north is... Um, hold on a second, folks. We're going to pause for a little bit. We'll be right back. Okay, folks, we're back. Um, Jen was overheating because she is not used to sitting this close to me for this long, and apparently I am too much of a furnace radiator type, and so she just had to get up and get away from me for a little while. And now she's opened up all the windows, See, she's eating some cold melon, and uh, you might hear some more wind noise picked up by the mic. We'll see how that goes. But regardless, where were we? Um, Oh, yeah, so the problem with going north is it's colder up north. And the thing is, Jen does not want to leave our lovely little home in southern Washington in the summer months because that's when it's at its most beautiful. Um, but that would be the best time to go further north when it's beautiful up there, too. Yep. So she wants to get the heck out of Dodge in the winter months when it's miserable and cold and, and gray. gray and rainy. And that continues to be the case the further north you go. <laughs> so um, that's why we find ourselves in southeast Utah as we film this right now. Because it's snowing back home. And it's yeah. been for the, we've been gone for almost a month or over a month now. And it's been miserable almost the entire time. There have been very few not horrible days back home, I believe. Yeah, but also it's been a really weird weather year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean... The thing is, we already have a place that we ideally like to be up north when the weather is nice. So that's always going to be kind of a tricky thing. Because that was the other thing, too. Even if, you know, when we were talking about going up to that, whatever that thing was in Banff, well, we'd be leaving right when Jen's favorite time is, when she can actually go out and garden and stuff like that. She doesn't want to go then. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've been to Mount Vernon many times. Um, I lived in Mount Vernon yep, for a summer. Yeah, we, we know the area. And, you know, maybe someday, who knows, but probably not, probably not for a while. Okay, and now let's see. I do. I, this is probably a bad Jeff. I apologize if I did a bad copy and paste here. Uh, heck, this might even be somebody else's questions, and I might have accidentally. So my apologies to whoever sent the following questions in. If it's not Jeff, I do make goofs from time to time. <laughs> in one of my more recent podcasts, I went into some detail regarding professional sports as a net negative. For society, I agree with much of what was stated, but also wonder if you weren't being a bit selective by singling out pro and college sports. Uh, well, first of all, remember, the first time I talked about this, which was just all on the fly and I wasn't expecting to say anything else, I repeatedly um, said that I uh, was, was not talking about sports as a whole, that I think, you know, communal sports, um, you know, I, I, heck, even kids sports can be bad because parents can try to relive their glory years to their kids and whatnot. But um, it, it looks like you're going to go in a different direction. So how about I just stop interrupting and let you <laughs> to wit, uh, the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, I see. I probably put the four here. It's probably supposed to be up there. That's what it was. Because that makes no sense for that that four to be right there. Jeff, all right, I fixed your email. 
Although I'm sure I screwed it up when I was copying and pasting in the first place. To it, the pharmaceutical industry, healthcare insurance companies, and hospitals certainly provide valuable services to the population by producing new and current medic and current medications, insurance to reduce healthcare costs, um, uh, hospital-based care. But I'd argue each of these institutions is deeply flawed for various reasons. Medical expenses are some of the highest among um, uh, developed nations. All the while, simultaneously lining the pockets of these corporations and their CEOs. So, despite all the positives, does this represent another example of net negative? No, it does not. Not even remotely a tiny little bit is it a net negative. Um, because at the end of the day, more people are alive than not because of advances in healthcare. Even though there are problems, as you are quite right to point out, and more importantly, these problems are regularly talked about. The entire political campaigns are driven around it. The entirety of the Obama pre uh, uh, presidency, I was going to say pregnancy, <laughs> sorry Obama, um, the entire uh, Obama presidency was a... Um, ultimately a moratorium on the ridiculous um, healthcare system we've got and trying to make it better. And it is getting better. It is better now than it was when I was growing up and it needs to get better still. Here's the deal though. All of that is known and discussed and debated. And um, whereas nobody talks about all the problems with sports, sports just gets a free pass um, as a general rule. Uh, I mean, you know, again, more time is spent talking about sports than public health care in any newscast you will ever see on any night of the week, and that's ridiculous. And that gives sports an outsized and over an inappropriately sized impact on society that it does not deserve. And so that's why I'm more quick to call it out than, say, you know, the medical industry, which, of course, needs to be called out as well. Believe me, I've called it out plenty of times on this podcast. I have complained. The thing that will eventually get us to leave this country, two things, lack of gun control and health care. Both of those reasons are why we will eventually return to Europe, where calmer heads prevail and saner um, institutions, policies. policies are the norm. All righty. Uh, but anyway, continuing with Jeff, to me, an industry that profits primarily on the basis of people becoming sick and chronically ill doesn't sit right with me. Shouldn't all facets of healthcare be made for nonprofit? Yes, of yes. course they should be. Yes. 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 So please vote Democrat. Do and ensure that all your friends and family do as well. Because as long as um, the Republicans still have a seat at the table, they will always be beholden to um, big business and at the expense of normal everyday people. That is literally... Their mantra. It is what they. It, it's what they do. It's in. It's in all of their playbooks. Anyway, sorry. Let's return to the realm of entertainment, which is really what pro sports are. Namely, television and movie entertainment. The industry, likewise, rakes in billions of dollars per year. But what is the net positive to society? Sure, news and documentaries, educational programs for adults and children, etc. But there's a lot of garbage out there they were willing to sign up and pay for. What are what? But uh, for what overarching benefit? I'd argue TV and movie offer little more than societal value in sports. I would disagree with that. I, I see your point, but no. Mo I mean, yeah, yes. There's lots of really crappy reality TV shows, Tiara, Teens, or whatever, you know, Tots and Tiaras, all that kind of stuff is just garbage. It's a shame what the arts and entertainment and history channels and, maybe not history channel, but what's the other one? Uh, I forget. But anyway, it, it's a shame there's a lot of garbage. But um, cinema and uh, film and TV is art. And when done well, 
And I, I would say these days, we are living in a golden age of, of entertainment that enlightens and informs that actually talks about the human condition, that actually brings um, into pub- into the spotlight the uh, problems that the uh, marginalized among us have had to face in silence for generations. Um, and you could say, yeah, that happened. You know, sometimes a sports celebrity will get on a pedestal or you know will kneel, and mm. that will create a firestorm of controversy. But um, at the same time, movies, uh, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, a lot of what I've learned about being a good human being came from watching frickin' Star Trek, quite frankly. The original Star Trek, the TV show, inspired generations of scientists that got us the frickin' cell phone, that, got, that, got, that made so many advances. Sports, I guess we have a lot of advances in sports medicine, and we have advances in... Um, sports equipment. <laughs> yeah. Sports didn't get us to the moon. Star Trek inspired generations and got us to the moon. Sports inspires people to do more sports. Sports is a closed loop. Entertainment. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, a, a personal story. Um, what movie is it? I do not remember which movie it is, but it uh, Samuel Jackson. Um, you know, uh, gosh, is it, it's not Mississippi Burning. But it was another movie that came out around the same time, and I think it had uh, "All Right, All Right, All Right" guy, Matthew McConaughey as the lawyer, and it was uh, you know a, a John Grisham novel, and um, what's it? Uh, Samuel L. Jackson this kind of made him a star, I think. Uh, you know, he has a very, very famous uh, line where he's you know, testifying. Uh, yes, I think they. Uh, yeah, I hope they die and I hope they burn in hell or whatever. And everybody remembers that line. But that was not the line that really affected me personally about that movie. Uh, the prior scene before that big final uh, courtroom scene was him and Matthew McConaughey talking quietly in a jail cell, and um, him talking about you know Matthew McConaughey saying, "I'm a good person." I, I just look at you and I see a man, and he said, "No, you don't. You look at me and you see a black man, and you look at me differently." And I mean, I was a teen when I saw that, and it made me look inward, and it made me think about how I look at the world, and it made me it made me change as a person. Sports doesn't do that as a general rule. Sports can inspire, um, but to more greatness of sports and to more greatness of our tribe over your tribe. Entertain movies and TV. Um, they can entertain, they can enlighten, they can inform, they can make us better. And I don't think sports as a general rule does that. I think sports, as part of my net negative, if anything, keeps us even keel and has a lot of negatives with it as well. Um, but that's just me. Um, okay, uh, next up, on a smaller scale, what about the video game industry? Consumers of all ages willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to be entertained by Xbox, PlayStation, etc. To what uh, benefit to humanity? Isn't this kind of an electronic version of pro sports consumption? I know there are differences, but again, what's the net positive? Dude, um, the video game industry is a cesspool. The video game, if you want it, I could probably, I don't know if I'd make it quite as strongly um, because I worked in it. Um, you know, for many, many years. It, it put us where we are in our life trajectory today. But, and I guess to be, to be fair, the vast majority of people have no idea what Gamergate is, right? But the video game industry got, brought us Gamergate. And the video game, I had already left the video game industry by the time Gamergate came out, but I still had friends and I still knew people and I was still on private message boards from industry professionals who were pro Gamergate. And like, and it's like, yeah, and that was like disgusting. 
and just the existence of Gamergate almost undoes anything positive about the about whatever you know, the not the sport about the the industry. And then never mind the fact how incredibly abusive it is. I mean, I know. Uh, it was abusive to me, and I it made me abusive to my employees, too. So, yeah, don't get me started on the video game industry. It's, uh, I, it's, it, it doesn't have quite the same ratio as sports, but it's closer to that than it is to theater and film and, uh, you know, and, and all the rest of it. Uh, next up. My last example involves the gaming industry, not board gaming. Uh, the gaming industry, not board or video game. The very lucrative business of legalized gambling. Net negative? You better yeah. believe it. Jeez Louise. Talk about a societal net negative. Um, you know, from you know slot machines in Vegas to the lotto tickets you buy down at the local 7-Eleven. It's all garbage. It is a huge net negative. It destroys so many lives... And we just let it go, and it's just—it's just, it's just uh, part of our culture. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. Everything about it is terrible. I—I uh, I put it in the same realm as sports, quite frankly, in terms of maybe even worse, probably even worse. But yeah, the existence of other bad things does not suddenly make a bad thing a good thing. <laughs> just because you found things that are even worse than sports, I don't think invalidates my point that sports are still overall a net negative. Anyway, I don't mean to sound critical. I do agree with many of your points as it relates to pro sports and college. What about the disproportionate rise in college tuition over the last 40 years? See, now that's another, um, that's a disease and symptom. It is ridiculous. It is tantamount to Roman era. Um, hey, the only way you can get ahead is by signing up to be a gladiator slave so you can make enough money for your family. And today we've got kids growing up in impoverished circumstances where your only way out is to try to become a sports star so you can get that to um, that college tuition when in fact all college should be free. You know, like it is in the rest of the freaking world. Another, if we were younger, another reason to go. Man, the first time. Oh, remember when we went to Copenhagen and yeah. they, they were pitching you and they're like, we've got free maternal leave, we've got free education, yep. we've got free this, that, and something else. And I'm like, I really wish I had wanted kids and, <laughs> and didn't already have the education I wanted. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, uh, oh my gosh. American culture is just broken on so many levels. Sports is just one facet of it. And honestly, actually, it's interesting. What's uh, what, what was uh, the ancient Romans? Bread and circus. Let's not fix the problems for the people. Let's just uh, put on really great spectacles so they can have a great time. Watching gladiators kill each other and watching, you know, they would flood the Colosseum and literally recreate ancient sea battles. Again, more violence is entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, and let's do all of that because that's cheaper and easier than actually making their lives better. And that was happening in ancient Rome, and it's still happening today because we put just as much time on the evening news with professional and college-level sports as we do with truly important things that matter. Why? Because our the American society uh, just gets everything wrong. That's not true. There's a, it gets a lot of things right, but it gets a lot of stuff wrong. As for professional sports, I'm becoming less and less interested in teams I use to faithfully follow. These days, I look forward to watching things like the Tour de France and the Olympics. Uh, but even there, becoming less tolerable because of all the hype, marketing, and tribalism goes on there. And local um, uh, co uh, community college sports. Honestly, the best sports you can be into are the, uh, the touch football games you play with your friends on the weekend in Absolutely. your backyard. Yep. That's the best use for sports right there. Yep. Kids Building community. Yes. There you go. And the rest of it, I mean, it, it should never have gone beyond that. Okay, number eight. 
Would you ever consider getting a couple of small goats? <laughs> Whoa, Whoa, whiplash. Yes, okay. let's talk about that. Um, we had them when we were younger, and the females were generally clean, friendly, and easy to take care of. I uh, just thought the chickens could use some company. The pooches would have someone else to play with, and you could keep your grass and weeds trimmed naturally. Well, um, I would certainly consider that, but I would consider sheep before goats. My sister had a um, oh. a couple of goats, uh, what, probably 10 years ago, something five like years ago, sure. something? Yeah, and the boy was absolutely disgusting, boy <laughs> goat, and in fact did impregnate his mother, and, Ooh. you know, they had a... Fun a, goat times. A mutant come oh. out of that. I don't, I don't know if it was a mutant. I think okay. it was another girl goat, but, All you know, right. that, wasn't, that wasn't good. No. Um, but, yeah, they were just hard, and I think eventually they, um, they got eaten by coyotes or something, because <laughs> they live out in the, in the wilderness. But... Um, so I think maybe not goats. Mm -hmm. um, although my my grandparents had goats and they would milk them and they would make goat cheese. And so there is this kind of fondness in my ancestral memory for goats. <laughs> and maybe that's why my sister tried them too. I don't know. But I do like sheep. All right. I do like sheep. Someday. Yep. Number nine. My last contribution to the Richard and Jen Q&A was inspired by a recent listener of your podcast that came up with the, a this or that. So the oh. following will simply call this, that, or the other. Okay. okay, honey pie. You're having breakfast. Pancakes, French toast, or waffles? <sighs> Waffle. And uh, I don't know why waffles get uh, three asterisks. Oh, maybe that's his choice. Uh, yeah. I might, and I might have, right. So you're planning a oh, short vacation. Is that yours? Are those your choices? No, 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 no. Oh. Uh, just copy and paste them. I'm assuming you're right. It must be him. Okay. And uh, yeah, easily waffles. Because they're crunchy. Yeah, crunchy. Soft on the inside, crunchy on the outside. Love that. And Gotta they've got it. little pockets for butter. Yep, and yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Waffles every every step of the way. Good waffles. Yeah, good. Not, not, not egos. Yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, good homemade. Uh, yeah, waffles, definitely. You're planning a short vacation. Mountains for hiking and climbing. Oceans for sailing, scuba diving. Forests for RV camping and trails. Ocean. Oh, wait. Oh, wait, we, we did this wrong. Um, this, that, or the other. Or no. Okay. Let's rank them all. Waffles, number one. We both agree. Yep. Uh, pancakes or French toast, number two. Hmm. I just made some French toast. That was pretty good, wasn't it? But I've probably made French toast twice in 30 years. So probably pancakes. I would go with pancakes too. Yeah. Uh, I've got I've had some bad French toast uh, run-ins mm. when my mom made French toast out of rye bread. Oh, <laughs> oh my! You enjoyed the uh, that cinnamon toast they made just recently. Yeah, that was good. That was good. A couple weeks ago. But I don't think it would have been better than if you'd made pancakes. Quite frankly. Yeah. At the end of the day. Alrighty. Okay. So uh, ranking them: the forest for RV camping and trails, the ocean for sailing and scuba snorkeling, the mountains for hiking and climbing. Number one. Ocean. Ocean for sailing and uh, number two. Forest. Alrighty. And uh, number three, mountains. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, don't care for the hiking and the climbing, huh? Uh, I don't climb. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy the hiking, but you can do hiking anywhere. Yeah. I, I like looking at the mountains. But the views. Mountains. I love looking at mountains, but I actually don't like driving in mountains. Ah. Uh, uh, which I've certainly definitely noticed. Yes, um, on this trip, definitely. Recently, definitely. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I would probably go, I would put forest at the top. I, I like forest very much, you and do. ocean number two, and mm. mountains number three. Yes. I keep wanting us to buy a house in the woods, and oh. Jen says, no, there's no sun. No. Like, oh, there's sun that's dappled through the trees. We're not doing that. I can't I, I can't live that way. All righty. Uh, you want to exercise, running and walking, swimming, or bicycling? Oh, I used to love running. I love, and I currently love walking. Um, when we lived in Malta, I tried to take up swimming. Mm. It was We were right across the street from a ocean. Mm -hmm. Um and still didn't do that much. Yep. So I'm going to go running, cycling, swimming. I would go swimming. I do love to swim. And I'm really good at it. You are. I'm yes. very, I'm an excellent swimmer. Um, yeah, so I do like swimming. And I guess walking. 
because running is just hard. There's nothing fun there. And I would uh, cycling would be my number one because I love cycling. But, but like I said, I, I literally can't do it. We talked about that earlier. There's a raven getting into our neighbor's... Uh-oh. Do we need to go take care of that, do you think? Are they around? Well, he was just reading a book there. Um. All right, we're going to pause for a second, folks. Joys of life on the road. Yeah, we're good neighbors. That thing was huge. It was huge. It was ridiculous. But it's gone now. Okay, so what was next? Uh, yeah, swimming. So I'm, it's likely to be number one, but it has to be number three because of my knee. Retired life in the U.S., U.K., or Malta <laughs> slash Portugal? Um, I was just reading an article about Portugal and several... Portugal is number one, easily. I'm sorry. Oh, I interrupted. I, yeah. What, what, what did the article say? The article said that um, there are so many Americans. Now, it's 30% of the people that are applying for the golden visas. Yeah, are going to Portugal. Are going to Portugal. And, um, well, and Spain and a couple of other countries. And it, it's actually pricing the locals out of oh. being able to afford housing. Oh, that's not good. Because, of course, we can afford 100000 whatever. It's mm -hmm. cheap to us, but 100000 to them is, you know, like yeah, 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 of, yeah. So, because uh, of because of monetary value, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I feel now a little bit awful about foreign retirement. <sighs> That's a good point. But we do already own our house in the UK, so certainly UK. And I, I think unless we get um, socialized medicine, I am not comfortable retiring. Oh yeah, the US. US is at the bottom of the list yeah. easily. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's no upside to it whatsoever. Well, yes, there is. What's there's that? lots of good things about the United States. Enough to, to for the purposes of retirement? No, I'm just... That's what I'm saying. saying I, for, within the confines of this, yes. Okay. There are many wonderful things about America. Okay. Uh, definitely, definitely, definitely. So, and then looking at Malta or Portugal, I'm, you know, that's makes me feel a little bit bad. So, that's a good point. I had not thought about that. Um, because, yeah, my, my gut response is instantly Portugal. Mm -hmm. um, because it's such a, a, pro, a progressively forward country. Yep, great climate. Yep, and an amazing climate, wonderful people. I mean, Paulo... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Has he personally invited us to come live in his country? Uh, probably, yes. <laughs> More than once, So I'm we've sure. been invited by a native, so yep. that's okay for us. But um, And Malta, same thing. I mean... Yeah, Malta was uh, nice. Remember Malta, even in the six years that we were there, the real estate prices went through the roof. Yeah. That is an interesting point. So yeah, I guess because of that, like you said, I guess we'd go UK, and then Portugal, and then Malta, and then the US. Alrighty. Best things about living in Washington State... Climate and natural beauty, the vibe or culture, or the food, and by which we mean regional architecture, berries, seafood, etc. Uh, agriculture, not architecture. Did I say architecture? You did. I'm a fool. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I think for me, I have all, actually I've always been proud, if you will, um, that Seattle and the Pacific Northwest are. Um, progressive yes. and cool yes. and all of that. I love that people put signs in their driveways, you know, the ones that you've seen that, in, you know, we stand for diversity, we stand for Black mm. Lives Matter and, and they're not afraid to put a sign at, in their yard saying all these wonderful things. Yep. I love that. Yep. Um, so I think that's probably the vibe he's talking about. Yeah, I would say so. Um, so, but I was, I was proud to say I was from Seattle living overseas, knowing that that was yeah. kind of mm -hmm. the way Seattle is perceived. So is that your number one then? Over the climate and natural beauty? I mean, it's all good. And I love I love gardening, so it's all good. Um, the best thing. About living in Washington. I'm going to go climate and natural beauty. All right. Although the climate kind of sucks. Yeah. Natural beauty. <laughs> I would go with the vibe, culture, and then climate, natural beauty, and then the food. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't like seafood at all. Yeah. So. I do. Yep. I love the seafood. All righty, and that was it for Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. You kept us going. Yeah. Single-handedly. But now we're moving on to Joshua, who uh, has been a bit sporadic on social media, but noticed that I haven't tweeted since the end of 2022. <laughs> Have I officially left Twitter? 
Yes, I have, Joshua. Uh, I think I talked about that earlier. Uh, it's just I forget what it was. You know, I mean, there, you know, after Elon bought it, I was like, okay, maybe people will be wrong. Oh no, boy, they're not wrong at all. Oh geez, and I don't remember if it was when they disbanded the, uh, the you know, they had an internal council for how to resolve issues, or when they um, stopped. When, when they, when they, when I think it might have been when they said, okay, we're going to allow COVID disinformation. Because people should hear both sides, you know, the truth and the lie, um, in you know, disguised as the truth. And I think it was that when they did that, like, okay, I, I refuse to stay on this because every time I tweet uh, anything, I'm just helping. I'm I'm perpetuating this, and I don't want to be a part of this because it's disgusting. And uh, never mind the fact that it's not like it brought anything good into my life at all. I'm happier for not being on that site, and as would every other person if they were to leave it. Um, with a few exceptions here and there, because it can be a source for good and all that too. But still, um, Elon's doing everything he can to make sure it's not. Okay, Kevin says thank you for the explanation of your feelings about sports, boy. Sports. Bring up sports, and people will talk about sports. All right, I can't. I myself enjoy sports, but agree there are people that can't handle it, and tribalism can be uh, way too much at times. The stories of life's change, of life change of live change is amazing to hear though and the hope it can give people if you want to cry just google some make a wish sports stories yeah that's that's fantastic um you know when i talk about sports i'm not talking about the individuals i'm talking about sports as a societal influencer uh, you know it's obviously uh you give a whole bunch of people to you give a whole ton of money to somebody for carrying a ball from one side of a lawn to another. <laughs> and you know what? Some of them do good things with that money. And that's fantastic. Alrighty. Um, one comment I always dislike is when people bring up the salaries of athletes. Oopsie, I just did it. Uh, remembering billionaires are paying them. I will never fault someone for trying to earn more salary from billionaires. I agree. I wish wealth was shared more. But I commend athletes that have uh, found a way to make millions from billionaires. They're not making the millions from billionaires. They're making mil- they're making millions from the fans. They're making millions from the taxpayers who subsidize the existence of the teams and their stadiums and all the rest of it. The billionaires are still billionaires. The billionaires wouldn't be doing it if it didn't make them even richer. That's the reality of it. It's not the bill. I'm, I'm sorry to, to that, that, at least. That's my opinion. I could be wrong. Um, have I ever thought about the salaries like that? No, obviously, I disagree with that um, when it boils right down to it. Uh, the billionaires would not be backing these things if it didn't make them more money in the end. Of course, there are exceptions to that. I know there are some billionaires who do it um, as a loss leader because they love the sport so much. But no, by and large, the billionaires... FIFA is making plenty of money. The Olympic uh, commissions, I mean, all of them are making more money than they are losing. And it's the fans who are paying um, those millions and millions of dollars, uh, not the billionaires. The billionaires are just only ever get richer. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be billionaires. Okay. Hey, that's it, except for doggos. And uh, Jeff says, Betsy is the white one with the eyebrow. Kaiser is the adorable Brindle. Oh. oh, very happy. Look was, at that uh, that's Betsy. Betsy is very happy. Who wouldn't love Betsy? Look at how happy Betsy oh. and Brindle is. Kaiser. Betsy and Kaiser. Very nice. Yep. They are, they are so wonderful. Yep. Love and them. look at that. Yeah. Okay. Big good nose schnozzle picture. Big schnozzle picture. And then finally, circle back around. Spoilers. Honey, the three things. Folks, 
Get out now if you have not watched season three of Picard or any of Picard, because maybe we'll talk about season one and two as well. And uh, but before you go, think of some questions to send to questionsarad.com. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Goodbye. Okay, any pie. You can say anything you want about season three of Picard. What are the three things that make it better than seasons two and one? Okay. Well, I liked that the band got back together. Yes. I liked. I liked having Ensign Rolaren back mm-hmm. on the show and finding out what she had ended up doing with her life because she just sort of disappeared. See, I mean. That's part of the band, getting back together. I know, but she is not traditional Starfleet. Well, Never was. No, but she was a regular on the show. I know. But she was originally going to be you know, the, the Major Kira in Deep Space Nine. That was originally going to be her, but Michelle Forbes turned it down because she didn't want to be typecast forever oh. as um, you know, Angry Bajoran Lady. <laughs> okay. Well... Still, it was nice to see her. I'm glad that they didn't just bring back the big stars. All right. Well, then you're going to have to come up with four things. Okay. So, uh, what's your third thing? Okay, the third thing is that I think it's kind of interesting that um, Starfleet is having a comeuppance. That they've made this virus to control the oh, shapeshifters. Yeah. And now the shapeshifters are coming for them. In the oh, that... Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Because obviously that is... That, you're right. That's a good point. I didn't even think about it. That is very Star Trek. Uh, about, you know, hey, look, we, we thought we were doing the right thing, installing this uh, new puppet dictator in this South American country. <laughs> and who knew in 30 years that it would lead to all of this or that or the other? Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, backing the Shah in Iran or whatever. Yeah, you're right. That's a really good point. Yep. Boy, I feel silly. They really haven't played up for it. They've only just kind of mentioned it in passing. Maybe, um, you know, there's yeah. still like two more episodes, I think, so maybe it'll become well, more... Well, it's when it's, the, it's, it's when a really the thing comes out of her, her hand or whatever, you know, he's, that the, thing the is other thing. about it. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that, a good well, that is really interesting because oftentimes we never see the results of Starfleet policies or, you know, how their interference has yep. been a, an asset or a detriment. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really interesting. That's cool. Um, and that's certainly something... Uh, yeah, the first two seasons of Star Trek, I mean, it's the second Picard. season of spe- uh, uh, Picard, especially, yeah. second season, didn't have anything to say about anything. It was just like, well, let's just go around and do some random stuff Yep. for 10 episodes. <laughs> and then, let's see, another thing that I'm really liking about it... I like that. That's a good one. ...is, I think maybe seeing Picard in a not-all-powerful god um, role. Mm-hmm. He's more of a guest wherever he's going and yeah he he can shake his charisma <laughs> and get a lot of stuff done but it's kind of nice that it just things don't all happen easily for him anymore mm. yeah, again, I guess that's just yeah a progression of his character and now how he's now would you I mean in retirement but that's I would say that's part and parcel of the whole series that's not unique to season three necessarily I don't know he seems like he's gotten any anything he's needed up to this point yeah and he certainly has still gotten everything he's needed. Yes. Um, well, no, I mean, but obviously the main thing you're thinking about is uh, in the nebula, the the showdown between him and Riker, and mm-hmm. Riker arguably being right, and, you know, you've killed us all, Jean-Luc. Get off my bridge! And all that. You're talking about that. That he he's not infallible. Yeah. But, no, I'm thinking about just everything. That they had to kind of swindle their way onto a ship, and then... You know, if it hadn't been for Seven of Nine, they wouldn't have been able to get out to wherever it was to rescue, mm-hmm. rescue Beverly and the kid. Yeah, but I mean, I would say that was true for the first season. I mean, the first season, he went to Starfleet. They couldn't help him. So he had to find Rafi and got Ru- Luis, Luis De- De- I can't remember his name. The, the, yeah, the, the, the kid. The, the, no, the, the captain, the, the, who ended up staying in the past in the second season. Even oh yeah, it was yeah, terrible. yeah, 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 him. Yep. Yeah, um, you know, so yeah, he had to, he, you know, he had to circumvent the law and all that. 
Yeah, I guess it just still seemed like it came pretty easy. Okay. But how about you? Uh, uh, um, the fact they aren't going to the past and just doing a retread of Voyage Home. Uh, I, I think the third season is fine, but I don't think it's great by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it's, I, I don't even want to say it out loud because if I mention something, you'll become very aware of it and it'll bother you as much as it bothers me. So I'm just not even going to say the thing that I really dislike about um, the production, let's say, of the show. Uh, it's just like, it's annoying. Um, in the same way that many people got annoyed by, remember the uh, Star Trek movies with the new young cast of Kirk and all that, mm -hmm. how there was like lens flares all the time. Yeah. And a lot of people hated that. Mm -hmm. It never bothered me. There's a, there's a similar thing with this season that I just can't stand. And it's just omnipresent. And it just makes me just, oh, I just, I'm not enjoying watching any of this. Because I just don't like what I'm phys seeing physically on my TV screen. Or our computer monitor, because we're on the road. Um, but it's fine. I wouldn't say it's been great. It's just been, it was so, the, I, I would say the first season, it's, it's as good as the first season. But not better than the first season. Um, and it's and the second season was just was just literally the worst Star Trek has ever been. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't necessarily have three things um, other than just like okay, they're not doing anything they did in the second season now, which was good. But I mean, I was not. I was. I mean, I, I, the reunion stuff is nice, but that doesn't even say oh, it's it's already oh oh it's Beverly. I, that's I mean, I, I I was totally fine with Patrick Stewart's. No, this is not a reunion show. This is something new. I mean, I'm just like, hey, new and different is good. That's cool. So, I mean, the the reunion thing doesn't really do anything for me. Um, I did your your point about how it's actually got, you know, there, there's there's something underpinning. There's it's really Star Trekky, and there, there's actually real meat under what's going on that is reflective of the real world. That's cool. I hadn't thought about that. Very very well observed. So I guess I've got one thing. Okay. All right. And now, folks, that you made it through this spoiler-filled section, we are out of here. And uh, how long was this? We had, um, so, yeah, less than two hours in and out. This was much shorter than the three- and four-hour episodes. And that's on you. More questions at questions at rado.com. And we will talk to you all again next month. Have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. And bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.